If you drive on State Route 79, heading out of or toward Florence, you can turn onto Hunt Highway, just north of the Gila River. A little over a mile later, you'll notice a lone butte to your right, a spit of rock rising up higher than most of the flat land around it. There's also a large dirt pullout here too, where you can park. And, if you are so inclined, there's a small trail that leads under some nearby railroad tracks and towards this butte. The trail is not too long, about a mile, but is slightly steep as it moves toward the top of the butte. But long before the top, you'll notice something. There, at the peak, someone has constructed a pyramid. As you keep ascending, it grows larger and larger into your view. You can see it now, definitely a pyramid shape made out of rocks and cement. Truthfully, it's a simple construction that's not that much to look at aesthetically. But then, you'll also notice a section of concrete on one of the faces with an inscription. It reads, Charles D. Poston, erected by the Territory, 1907. And that's it. You can stand there for a while, looking over the fields and toward distant housing developments and mountains, maybe even enjoying a slight breeze, before heading back down. That may sound anticlimactic, but if you have ever made that short hike in person, or have just followed along with my narration, then let me congratulate you. Because you have just visited the final resting place of the man now known as the Father of Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you're listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 30, No Law But Love. Before we dive straight into talking about who Charles D. Poston was and why one day the territory will give him a hillside burial, let's set the scene a little bit. For that, we need to rewind from where we ended last week and once again look at that period when no one was quite sure how the Gaston Purchase was going to pan out. While the final border survey was underway, Yankees began to drift into what is today Arizona. Almost to a man, these were miners. It's almost hard to overstate what a large role the allure of valuable minerals played in this part of the state's history. In his 1916 three-volume work on the state, James H. McClintock starts off a chapter talking about these early efforts by saying, quote, The history of mining in Arizona is, practically, the history of Arizona, end quote. Many miners came because they had failed to strike it rich in California and wanted to start over in another promising location. Others, however, came solely because of the rumors of rich veins of silver to be found in the new territory. According to McClintock, in 1851, a Mexican man named Jose Antonio Acuna returned to Sonora and spun a tale about vast silver deposits somewhere near the Salt River. The natives, Acuna claimed, did not know what silver really was, and, mistaking it for lead, used it to craft bullets. Pause to insert your favorite werewolf hunting joke here. 
Eventually, he was able to gather a group of 500 men, which he led north to a point on the Gila River. Unfortunately, they were met there by a hostile force of Apache, which quickly caused them to turn around, so the whole expedition came to naught. McClintock adds that the deposits Acuna mentioned was likely the silver later found in Globe and Superior, which sit near-ish to the Salt River. But when it comes to silver, we find again and again that miners are after that greatest of all Sonoran tales, the Arizona mine. We, of course, know all about the Arizona mine, having talked about it in our very first episode. Remember the Yaki man finding balls of silver on the ground, or the part about the slab of silver that weighed a hundred arrobas, or one and a quarter tons? Both McClintock and his contemporary Thomas Farish talk about this mine, giving a few somewhat accurate details about the original 1736 strike. McClintock adds that it had been abandoned due to a fear of Apache raids, which is entirely possible. If you can cast your mind back that far, remember that historian Donald Garate says specifically that Anza the Elder inquired among the Odom about the site, but was told they never went anywhere near the place due to the fear of Apache attacks. Turns out, though, that this strike was the sort of story that doesn't die easily. The mine became known as Planches de Plata, or Plates of Silver, based on the stories. McClintock relates one account from the 1860s, where the writer talks about the rich mine of Arazuma by saying, quote, For nearly a century, the account of the wealth of this mine was considered fabulous. After examining the old records, I have no doubt the facts surpass the astonishing report. For in Mexico, the propensity has ever been to conceal, rather than overestimate, the quantity of silver, on account of the king's fifth. Arazuma was for a hundred years the world's wonder, and so continued until the breaking out of the Great Apache War a few years afterward. Men seemed to run mad at the sight of such immense masses of virgin silver, and for a time it seemed as if silver was about to lose its value. End quote. This account then says that in the midst of this silver madness, the Spanish king stepped in, declared it his personal property, and thus it was closed to private business and soon forgotten. If you recall the details of the strike from episode 1, you'll recognize that this account is some pretty bad mangling of what actually happened. But despite the intervening century, this story continued to serve as an impetus for Americans looking to strike it rich. After all, if one mine worked by Spaniards had produced those kind of riches, Imagine what would happen once several operations got going with American ingenuity and what have you. In 1855, a group decided to test their luck by finding and exploiting this mine. But first, they set up a little operation in the place that would soon be known as Arizona. This group of roughly 20 men organized in California as the Arizona Mining and Trading Company and passed through Fort Yuma on its way toward finding the fabled silver mine. They actually left about a half a dozen men at Ajo, that little community that sits along State Route 85, after they discovered there was copper to be had. This group started the first American mining operations in that area, something that continued up until the early 1980s. 
After the main group had left, this small band experienced some hostilities from Mexican officials who, in McClintock's words, quote, seemed unable to locate the new international line, end quote. These Mexicans claimed the site and threatened to take the mine by force. McClintock claims that a small skirmish commenced, but the miners were able to defend their encampment and drive the Mexicans off. Farish, however, says the Mexicans gave the miners an ultimatum to leave or risk battle, but the miners called the Mexicans bluff and the troops ultimately retreated. Several loads of the copper ore from this mine were packed out and then sent to San Francisco, and eventually ended up in Swansea, Wales, of all places. According to McClintock, this ore sold for $360 a ton, which, if the internet has not failed me, comes out to be about $10,700 a ton in 2020 dollars. However, even though something like 30 tons was mined, the high price of getting the copper out of this spot in the middle of the desert negated any profits, and the venture did not last long. Meanwhile, the other 14 guys kept going down into Sonora in search of their riches, and, believe it or not, they claimed to have found it. Well, at least they found some silver. According to Farish, they were able to dig up roughly 4 ounces near the surface one day, and then a 19-pound chunk soon after. He also says that last discovery was made in a place with old shallow diggings that was, quote, overgrown by stout oak trees, end quote. So, once again, Garate may have been onto something with his theory about the origin of the word Arizona. However, this burgeoning mine expedition also did not last. Rumors reached the local Mexican prefect that not only were there American miners nearby, but that they may have found the fabled Planchas de Plata mine. Troops immediately rode out to demand that these miners scram. Since the Americans were well aware that they were on Mexican soil, they had no choice but to comply with the order. The Planchas de Plata mine, if they had discovered it at all, was now in the hands of the Mexicans. This just barely scratched the surface of the start of an industry that is going to play a big role in our story moving forward. Strikes and boom towns will come and go so fast that it will make your head spin. But mining will also bring in many of the more colorful personalities that make up Arizona history, which is where our story now turns. And that leads us to today's subject. Because among this group of businessmen, dreamers, scammers, colonizers, and opportunists first starting to see their fortunes in Arizona was the one-time customs clerk from Kentucky named Charles Poston. In the next few weeks, we'll get into how Poston will one day earn the sobriquet Father of Arizona and eventually get his pyramid on top of that butte near Florence. I've also posted an image of Poston and some photos of a recent visit to his tomb under this week's episode on the podcast website, azhistorypodcast.com, if you want to see for yourself. But for now, let's just get him into the state and see what he does from there. Charles Debril Poston was born near Elizabethtown, Kentucky on April 20th, 1825. His father was a printer, and young Charles, 
in between schooling, would serve as a printer's devil. By the age of 12, he was an orphan, but was placed as an apprentice to the county clerk for Hardin County, where he would serve for the next seven years under a man named Samuel Haycraft. Haycraft is worth a mention because in a few years, Poston will marry his daughter, Margaret. After his apprenticeship at the county clerk's office, Poston moved to Nashville, Tennessee, where he spent three years clerking for the state's Supreme Court and reading law, as they said at the time. Which is to say that he literally read law books and was mentored by the judges and lawyers around him to become a lawyer himself. That was the common practice to enter the profession in the time before law schools. Following the Mexican-American War, Poston was one of those pulled west to California to seek better opportunities. In 1851, he set up in San Francisco with a job as clerk in the city's custom house. In his own account, which is a short and fairly interesting read, by the way, Poston recounts how in 1853, all the talk in the customs house was about the upcoming Gadsden Purchase. He also claims that around this time, members of the Iturbide family, that is, those related to Agustin Iturbide, the one-time emperor of Mexico, had come to California. Supposedly, these family members spun a tale about having something in the order of 3 million-plus acres of land in a series of grants in Sonora, Sinaloa, and Baja, California. According to Poston, this intelligence mixed with the knowledge that the U.S. wanted an all-weather railroad line, that Gadsden had been authorized to offer up to $50 million for most of northern Mexico, and a good deal of alcohol, to set everyone's imagination on fire. He wrote of these discussions that it was reported, quote, that the Gulf of California was the Mediterranean of the Pacific, and its waters full of pearls, that the peninsula of Lower California was copper-bound, interspersed with gold and minerals, illustrated with old Spanish missions, and fanned by the gentlest breezes from the Pacific. That the state of Sonora was one of the richest of Mexico in silver, copper, gold, coal, and other materials, with highly productive agricultural valleys in the temperate zone. End quote. You can probably imagine how a 23-year-old kid slaving away in a clerking job might be tempted to follow up on such rumors. So, with the backing of some French bankers, Poston threw together a group of rough men to sell to Sonora in search of the Iturbide grant, so they could start the settlements that would spring up in what was sure to be a brand new state as soon as the Gaston Purchase was signed. He sailed for Guaymas, arriving in early 1854. In his later writings, Poston says the ship reached the port on January 14th. And that's when he learned the bad news. Mexican officials were polite, but not all that welcoming to his party, informing him that Gadsden's treaty had been signed. But the U.S. now stopped well north of where he was currently at. Poston wasn't a filibuster per se, but the authorities held him a bit, you know, just in case. Greatly disappointed, but still undeterred, Poston headed north to see exactly what territory had been turned over. I like Poston's writings because, above all else, he was a salesman, so his breathless accounts of Arizona are purposefully grand and inviting. For example, he writes, quote, 
The country north of the Mexican boundary is the most marvelous in the United States. The valleys are as fair as the sun ever shone upon, with soil as productive as the valley of the Nile. The rigors of winter never disturb agricultural pursuits in the open. In fact, in the southern portions of the territory, there is no winter. The valleys of Arizona are not surpassed for fertility and beauty by any that I have seen, and that includes the whole world, but still they are not occupied." End quote. Sounds like a great place to live, doesn't it? Too bad he left out the heat, lack of rainfall, rattlesnakes, cactus, and so on and so forth. Poston and his company passed by Tucson in March 1854, describing it as a small outpost of maybe 300 Mexicans and Amerindians. They also followed the usual path to the Odom settlements on the Gila, where Poston gives the usual praise about the Amerindians who are without guile or avarice and making passing references to Casa Grande and other prehistoric structures. He arrived at Fort Yuma in July 1854, having spent some six months traversing northern Mexico and southern Arizona. It's while here that he first met Samuel Heiselman, the army officer who had re-established the fort just a couple years beforehand. The pair would go on to have a long-lasting partnership, which we'll get to in just a moment. Because Poston found that the ferry to get his company across to Colorado would cost $25, which, given his travels, he definitely did not have, he looked for another way to earn his passage. Borrowing surveying equipment, maps, and other tools, Poston took it upon himself to survey a 936-acre site across the river from Fort Yuma for a prospective settlement. According to McClintock, when the ferry operator came to see what all the commotion was about, Poston showed him the survey and traded him a prime lot for the ferry operation in exchange for passage. The town site for Colorado City, later Arizona City, and then eventually Yuma, was officially recorded in San Diego, with the survey bearing the names of Poston, John C. McLemore, and Herman Ehrenberg. Despite his disappointment that the Gadsden Purchase had acquired so little of Mexico, Poston was nonetheless enthused about settling what new territory there was. After briefly returning to California, he then proceeded to Washington in 1855 to drum up support for a new project. Not finding much enthusiasm from President Franklin Pierce or his cabinet, he next proceeded to New York to see if some businessmen would take a gamble. He was helped by the presence of Heinzelman, who had been assigned to a new post in the East and was always interested in a good business venture. My favorite bit about his pitch meetings is that Poston literally says, quote, I told them all I knew about the territory, and a great deal more, end quote. Remember, kids, always remain skeptical of business propositions, especially if you are an 1850s business magnate being offered a stake in a company in a territory you know nothing about. Finally, though, the Sonora Mining and Exploring Company was organized with an initial $2 million in capital. Heinzelman was named the company's president, with Poston getting the job as manager. With his money now in hand, it was time for him to return to Arizona. 
After swinging through Texas and New Mexico to recruit, the company arrived at Tucson in August 1856, in time for the festival of San Agustin. Poston wrote, quote, Two weeks furlough was given the men to attend the fiesta, confess their sins, and get acquainted with the Mexican senoritas, who flocked there in great numbers from the adjoining state of Sonora. End quote. He notes that there were a few violent outbreaks during this time, mainly among the Americans in town, which Poston numbered at roughly a dozen. After the partying was done, however, it was time to get down to business. The first item was finding a suitable location to set up operations, one that could be used for storing the company's equipment and providing adequate defense in case of native raids. After looking around, Poston decided that the now-abandoned Tubac would be the ideal spot. Despite comparing it to entering the ruins of Pompeii, Poston immediately sent men to the nearby Santa Rita Mountains to cut timber in order to build new corrals, furniture, and, you know, doors for the old buildings. Later that autumn, the men returned to the Santa Ritas, but this time to follow up on mining for gold and silver. Once it was known that mining was now happening again, a good number of Mexicans came up from Sonora to work for the company. By Christmas 1856, so roughly four months after getting situated at Tubac, Poston reckoned that there were at least a thousand people around the area, though we should probably eye that tally with a good deal of skepticism. But Poston is unabashed in his praise for this time, and years later, in 1899, he would tell a lecture hall full of people that his favorite Christmas he had ever spent was the one he celebrated in Tubac in 1856. In his written account, Poston includes a line that it seems every historian quotes, either sincerely or ironically, so I might as well follow tradition and throw it in here as well. In rapturous language, he summed up life in Tubac with, quote, We had no law but love, and no occupation but labor, no government, no taxes, no public debt, no politics. It was a community in a perfect state of nature. End quote. You have to admit, that sounds pretty nice. And what made Tubac even better, at least for Poston in his writings, is that as part of the migration of Mexicans to Tubac was a large influx of women. By Poston's estimate, the California gold rush and infighting in Mexico had left a gender imbalance of roughly 12 women to every man, so many single women or widows came north to the new operation at Tubac. The settlement welcomed them, with its manager writing of both their beauty and refining influence. Quote, They could keep house, cook some dainty dishes, wash clothes, sew, dance, and sing. Moreover, they were expert at cards, and divested many a miner of his week's wages over a game of Monty. End quote. As you can imagine, with lonely miners and beautiful senoritas around, pairing off became something of a necessity. As the head of the company town, and following in Mexican custom as the community's alcalde, Poston took it upon himself to marry couples. He was also active in baptizing children, granting divorces, and overseeing criminal justice. 
For these marriages, Poston didn't charge anything, but rather gave the couples a marriage certificate of his own making and a small ceremony where a tiny amount of blasting powder held in place by a large anvil would be detonated in celebration. And usually the couple would have jobs in Tubac to boot. Since priests down in Mexico charged $25 to marry a couple, many who couldn't or wouldn't pay the fee simply came north. Poston writes that because of this, Tubac became something of a Gretna Green for Sonoran couples, in allusion to the Scottish city whose position on the English border and the country's lax marriage laws made it a destination for eloping English couples starting in the late 1750s. After a couple years of this, and after many thankful parents had named their children Carlos or Carlota in his honor, came a harsh reality check. The Archbishop of Santa Fe dispatched Father Joseph Machebuf to Tubac to check on the spiritual condition in this thriving community. As you might expect, Machebuf was aghast at the fact that none of these marriages happening had been blessed by the priest and declared each and every one of them null and void. The Padre politely thanked Poston for what he had done, but made it clear that his ceremonies were not recognized by God. Poston writes that he feared a riot if the situation was not rectified soon, so he sat down with Machebuf to work out a deal. Finally, it was decided that the good Padre would bless all the marriages performed and legitimized all those Carloses and Carlotas, on the condition that Poston had to stop taking upon himself any authority reserved for the church. The fact that Poston also agreed to hand over a $700 donation to the church helped smooth any ruffled feathers. Overall, Poston is effusive about what he considers to be the idyllic conditions of Tucson. He talks about how the tables were laid with fresh game, how a garden had been set up by a German miner and some Mexican assistants to provide vegetables, and how goods and commerce flowed in and out of the community. He's also sure to mention that the community was constantly receiving visitors, who were never charged for entertainment, horseshoeing, or fresh supplies. Hospitality, Poston writes, is a savage virtue, and it disappears with civilization. On Sundays, state historian Marshall Trimble writes that Poston was known to lounge in the pools created by the Santa Cruz River, smoking cigars and reading six-month-old newspapers. Poston himself writes that Sundays were a time for many, especially the settlement's women, to head south to the abandoned mission at Tumacockery. The mission itself was, quote, rapidly going to ruin, end quote, but fruit trees were still abundant in the area, which helped supplement their food stores. I also find it amusing, and a great example of why you can't always take Poston at face value, when he says that the, quote, records indicate that Tumacockery once supported a population of some 3,500 people. I think we talked enough about the trouble of living in the area that all of us can see that that simply isn't true. On the mining front, the ores in the Santa Ritas were not producing good yields, so Poston acquired the 17,000-acre Aravaca Ranch from the Ortiz family who had held it. In the spring of 1857, miners hid a rich vein of silver that yielded $7,000 per ton in the Cerro Colorado Mountains, which sit north of Aravaca Road in Pima County. 
The German miners named this strike the Heiselmann Mine, after the company's president, who had a good, solid Deutsch name after all. Despite having to haul the ore to Guaymas and then send it by ship to San Francisco, the ore still turned a nice 50% profit. And in the fall of 1857, Poston also sent a load via wagon through Kansas City, giving the eastern United States a good look of what Arizona could produce. However, Poston found that paying people in silver bars was not a viable method, so he had to improvise a little. Taking a cue from the use of paper money in Mexico, he devised a system of bills in denominations of 12.5 cents, 25 cents, 50 cents, $1, $5, and $10. He sent away four engraving plates from New York and began printing the money on pasteboard, which had the dimensions of roughly 2 inches by 3 inches. Since many of his men were illiterate, he decided upon using pictures on the money so they could easily tell the bills apart. Instead of using drawings of people, he went simpler and used animals. So a pig would be on the 12 and a half cent note, while the $10 bill would have the image of a lion. He claims that these notes were good with both the company store and surrounding merchants, or could be redeemed for silver if needed. He writes, quote, Everybody holding boletas, or this paper money, was interested in the success of the mines, and the whole community was dependent on the prosperity of the company. They were all redeemed. Mines formed the bank of nature, and the industry puts the money in circulation to the benefit of mankind. End quote. Now, Post intends to write about this time with incredibly dark-tinted rose-colored glasses, so I'm more than a little skeptical about how well this system actually worked. Mind you, I haven't seen it written anywhere that there were issues with this company script, but whenever this sort of system is instituted, there are always some problems. But to sum up this time, Poston writes, quote, In the early months of 1857, everything was going well in the Santa Cruz Valley. The mines were yielding silver bullion by the most primitive methods of reduction. The farmers were planting with every prospect of a good crop. Emigrants were coming into the country and taking up farms. Merchants were busy in search of the almighty dollar or its representative. End quote. And... That sounds as good a place as any to call it this week. But join me next week as we dive a little more into Poston's time at Tubac and find out that not everything is the utopian ideal he portrays. We'll also do a run around other developing parts of Arizona to see what they have been up to since the Gatson purchase. And finally, we'll learn how a Greek-Syrian man became a living legend in Arizona, when he takes part in a famous little experiment to conquer the deserts with camels. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.